This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. Inch wide and mile deep versus mile wide and inch deep. Jack of all trades, master of none versus the specialist. Conceptually, this is the idea that distinguishes the nuances between a small architecture firm and a large architecture firm. But is that really true? Should it be true? How should this idea measure philosophically into how you run an architecture firm, whether it's large or small? This is the topic we are tackling today on episode 89, Small Firm Mentality. Special thanks to NCARB for their generous support of today's conversation. Welcome to the Life of an Architect podcast. I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today we're going to be discussing the idea of how to best run an architectural firm. That sounds like a huge topic, but it evolved out of a conversation I had one evening over tacos and margaritas with today's guest, architect and founding principal at Alamo Architects in San Antonio, Mike McGlone. Mike grew up in the southeast Houston suburb of Pasadena and attended the School of Architecture at the University of Texas at Austin. After graduation, he remained in Austin working for Sinclair Black FAIA until moving to New York City where he spent his internship primarily at Hardy Holtzman Pfeiffer Associates. In 1983, after a visit to Texas, he and his wife packed up and left New York City for San Antonio. With UT classmates Irby Hightower, Mike Lanford, and Billy Lawrence, Alamo Architects was founded in 1984. Their broad practice of 55-plus employees is focused on K-12, higher education, retail and commercial development, preservation and adaptive reuse, multifamily, interiors, urban design, civic engagement, and master planning. In addition to his leadership at Alamo, he has taught at UT Austin and UT San Antonio, led mission trips to the Texas-Mexico border, served with varieties of nonprofit and civic organizations, and is the current citizen architect, curmudgeon in residence at the City of Alamo Heights Architectural Review Board. Mike has been a member of AIA since 1997, and has served in a number of leadership positions with AIA San Antonio, the Texas Society of Architects, and AIA Strategic Council at the national level. That's a lot of stuff. Hi, Mike. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> Thrilled to be here. Well, we're happy to have you. I kind of wish we were still having tacos and margaritas, <laughs> though, if I'm being honest. Ditto. <laughs> yeah, that would be a nicer conversation for sure. Yeah, we need to figure out how we could just like sit on a patio eat tacos, drink margaritas, and just record those conversations. That's a life goal for this podcast. Yeah, I'm all in on that. (laughs) All right. So let me set the table for how today's topic and our guest came to be on the show. Since I made the switch from working in a small firm for the vast majority of my professional life, Mike and I were talking about how that transition was going. And while that conversation wandered around a bit, as will happen when tacos and margaritas are involved, Mike followed up with a text to me later that evening that read... I slash weave, I like how you were inclusive of everybody in your office, been trying to run a 50 plus person practice as a small firm for the last 20 years. I've got some thoughts, which let's be honest, that's a very evocative text to send somebody late at night after you've been drinking. (laughs) (laughs) That's the kind of text that leads to action, actually, is what that is. If you remember it the next day. (laughs) Yeah. Well, look, it worked, right? So here you are, you're on the show. It's only taken us, I don't know, three months since that text came in for us to say, you know, let's have this conversation, see if we can't work it out. So let's get into this because 
there's a lot to unbox should we want to dig down deep enough into these. So let's just start off our chat today with talking about why somebody would want to run a larger firm as a small firm. I think clearly this is a group, meaning Andrew, myself, and yourself, that thinks there are some benefits to this way of running a practice. So let's get into that first. You know, I had the advantage of working for an architect, a good architect, while I was in school, part-time while I was a student, summers, and then as you know, mentioned in the, in the bio, after I had officially graduated and was kind of lingering around in Austin for Sinclair Black. And later in life, I looked back on that and I said, you know, in a way, the sort of notion that you're working for somebody that you have a lot of respect for, it meant I took my job seriously, but I got a lot of freedom to do that. And I learned a whole lot basically because you have to when you work in a small practice. And so I thought, you know, those are the things that ultimately, you know, we've tried to do somewhat informally. And I think large practices, mostly in their original form of becoming large, have grown out of small practices. And so I wonder sometimes why isn't that they don't function the same way? A sports analogy popped in my brain as you were talking just then. <laughs> it made me think about hockey. No, <laughs> not hockey. <laughs> Curling. Oh, all right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, it had to do with a basketball team versus a football team. And you can take one player on a basketball team and make them spectacular, and the whole team becomes much more competitive and a much more viable kind of product can be delivered just through the genius of one person. A football team doesn't quite work that way. They need more people to kind of spearhead this charge towards greatness and the cult of personality of a single individual is not enough once you start throwing more and more bodies at it. You know, when I think about all the time at small firms that I worked at, you know, this was a note for later, but there's this concept of attitude reflects leadership. And I think that small firms tend to not hang on to their employees quite as long, but they come in, they grow, and most of the time because of the strength of those people's or person's personalities, they want to leave and go start their own firm a lot of times. And so you constantly have this churning over of talent and abilities, but you always have heat-seeking missiles of individuals that want to get in and have everything possible thrown at them, um, which as you do, they grow and then they leave and you start that process over again. I don't think that same kind of cycle exists at a large firm. No, not in the same way. Oh, yeah. I was going to say, I, the churning, I think, definitely occurs in a larger firm with the same results. Yeah. You know, I had the opportunity to work with a lot of fantastic, you know, young architects when I was at HHPA. Uh, and I, you know, I often wondered kind of while I was there, it's like, well, why aren't they kind of taking better care of us? And I don't think it was from a sense that they didn't care about what we were doing. They were just used to the sense that people are going to come and go and that's great because we're always going to attract good people. I mean, I, what I would say, Bob's comment about heat seeking missiles, right? There was always somebody to come there and there were a whole bunch of different personality types, even within their leadership, but it was mm -hmm. pretty small at the top. I started one day and I'm, like the day after I started, we had an office meeting and uh, Hugh Hardy stood up and he said, Hey, 
if anybody has any issues with the way that we're going to, we're doing things, I just want to share with you that Aero Serenin told me once that when you reach 50 people, you have to change the way that you run your practice. And Mike McGlone is employee number 50. You can go talk to him. <laughs> wow. That happened not right when you got there, huh? Uh-huh. Nice. Yeah. Wow. You're like, thanks. What an introduction. Uh, and then, of course, you know, four years later, I'm working there and somebody goes, you know, hey, nothing really changed when you started. It's exactly the same as it was. And there were 80 people. So, You know, I don't know which is a worse thing to hear. Like, if things change, it's his fault. And years later, when you got here, nothing changed. <laughs> I want to go, wow, when you can't hear, everything changed, right? Like, oh, my God, we, we put everything on its ear. So let me ask you this. Like, what are some of the kind of characteristics that we generally assign to small firms that maybe we're not as quick to assign to a large firm, like flexibility and less bureaucracy, those kind of come to the mind immediately, right? Small firms, your access to senior leadership is three steps over or one desk over or, you know, just right there. And that's not necessarily the case in large firms. So I think that's one of the low-hanging observations that could be different. And then we get back to that attitude reflect leadership kind of comment I made at the beginning. If you're working in a, in a large firm and you're trying to take on the tendencies of the people that you associate most with, you might be responding to someone who's just slightly more senior than you are, and they don't have the same sort of cult of personality that helped that firm to grow and become sustainable or be what it is anyway, because I believe that the, the successful growth model of the small firm is you got one really super talented, dynamic individual. And based on the strength of like their skill set, you get work and it keeps the people in the office busy. And then what happens as work gets more and more piled on, the, the, that one person can't handle all of it anymore. So things start to tailor off a little bit because people aren't getting the magic of that one person as much. So workload drops back down again. Until now that person can focus more of their effort on those clients and on that development and on the end product, project goes back up again. So you have this never-ending kind of up-down wave sign sign form that kind of happens in a small firm. The way larger firms grow is they add another dynamic individual. And so now you've got two people that are creating that kind of workflow. And when one person's up, maybe the other person's down and they balance each other out. And it seems like Large firms grow because they put that dynamic individual, they have a number of them, and each one of those people develops something within that office that allows the firm to grow. Like, I don't think the genius of one person can create a 50-person firm. I, I just don't believe that that's true. I haven't seen it. Yeah, I think that firms also tend to grow. I, I don't necessarily agree completely that it's a one-person firm leader and the it ebbs and flows like that. I think there's also models that, you know, you have two individuals or maybe even three come together who basically are dynamic, perhaps in different ways that grow the firm. I mean, that's really how our practice was founded. We had come to San Antonio to work with an old professor that turned out to be basically kind of a disaster because we were always going to be students and he was always going to be a professor and we were never going to be equals. So there was a an unofficial parting of the ways after lunch on a Tuesday. We went to a bar, had a few drinks, stayed a little bit later, closed the bar down. Then the next day we said, oh, 
how hard could this be? <laughs> I was going to say later that night, Mike sent a text to everybody else and says, I have some ideas. We didn't have text way back then. <laughs> By the end of the night, it was scribbled on a napkin. Alamo Architects, let's do it. Yeah. With a bunch of rings, you know, blots, you know, and you know, fading <laughs> ink on the top of the table. But, yeah. but the thing I think for us that has a lot to do, I think, with our success as a business and our success of trying to run a larger firm as a small firm is we sat down <laughs> when we started our very first project and we just said, look, we all want to be architects. And there were kind of four of us. So, you know, the traditional way a firm gets divvied up with a, you know, a design leader, you know, a sort of practice technology leader, you know, the money person, and then some other part of that. We just said, look, We'll do all these things together, but we're not going to assign those as responsibilities. And so I think that allowed us to grow in a way, uh, I wouldn't call it organic, but it allowed us to grow that we were all healthy mentally about what we were doing and understood it as a contribution to the firm. But let me ask you this. Okay. So that was 36, 37 years ago, Yeah. right? Yeah. Have the four of you settled into one of those kind of assigned roles over those 30 years? Or do you still manage the work the exact same way? I don't I don't literally mean the exact same way, but in the beginning you're like, we all want to do architecture, so we're not going to assign these roles. But did you gravitate towards those roles eventually over time over the last 30 years? Yeah, I think we took on as we got larger, you know, and you can't it gets it's harder to make all decisions at the same moment by the same individuals, we sort of sort of said, okay, well, I'm going to do this. I'm probably more of the people person in the firm. So I took on the interviewing and the, the sort of HR-ness, if you would say. One of my other partners wants to make sure the checkbook balances every month. And, you know, and, and then these other parts and pieces, we kind of, we had other people who eventually took those on. But we have stayed true to the core that I'm not going to be the person that reads employee manuals day in and day out and make sure that everybody is in the office on time or whatever those kind of people do. We don't do that. No. This is the way we do it. Every person that we interview, mm -hmm. a lot of people say, well, you know, what's your organizational structure of the office? I said, well, we're really interested in being good architects and all that other stuff we share equally and inefficiently. So if you're really, really concerned that your annual review occurs on the literally the day of the anniversary you were hired, you're not going to be happy here. <laughs> yeah. Your review might take place in the month you were hired. <laughs> That's nice. Oh, let me ask you this, because I don't want to get too far downstream before I ask it. Given all the different areas at which Alamo works, the, you know, the whole K through 12 higher education, I'm not going to reread them all, but there's a lot of them. Do <laughs> you find that all of you do work in all of those sectors or do we say, hey, Irby does these projects and Mike does these projects and Billy does these projects? Is that, and did that, did that just kind of evolve because you liked it and so you chased it as an individual as opposed to a firm? Yes, is the short answer to that. That is a short answer, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> it has evolved that way. I mean, Irby has always been interested in urban design, placemaking, uh, and housing, in a sense. 
we have a younger partner who now kind of runs that little studio, so to speak. I've always been the person who's been very interested in the adaptive use. And, you know, I love old buildings. I love modern buildings. I love making them together. And Billy certainly has an incredible eye and flair for retail development and both interior design as well. And Mike Lamford is just, he's just a solid, awesome architect who has the personality that takes to basically build a relationship with the higher ed people and sort of maintain it over time, which is, I think, one of the most awesome skills there is for a practice. <laughs> it's not an easy skill, also, I can tell you. Yeah. <laughs> Those clients tend to be sometimes not easy to deal with over the long haul. Right. Over the long haul, I should say. You know, I'm curious about, as Bob's asking about settling into these roles, my question would be was how large were you and those things started to settle out, right? I assume at some point, whether that's 20 people or 30 people before those, yeah. you kind of settled into those roles. But up until that point, you were all still doing everything, taking out the trash, writing specs, whatever, whatever, whatever. Right. Like, where do you feel like that size was where it started to, not necessarily silo, but a little bit, like you got focuses of your own. Right. I think it's about 20. And in many respects, I think it has to do with the project size that you're doing, right? Mm. Bigger yeah. projects, bigger teams to manage, bigger, longer time links, right? That you have to sort of like figure out how to get people in and out of. At a certain time, you know, you just go like, well, you know, I remember when we were working on the shops at La Contera, at some point, I think we were about 24 people then. And literally 20 people in the office were working on it. Wow. Right. You know, yeah. I mean, it, not, not literally every day for eight months, but there was a time when it was like, okay, it was all hands, yeah, it was on, all deck. hands yeah. on deck. Yeah. <laughs> if you had to jump over onto another ship to work on something else, like, uh, okay, we'll do that. The other three or four people that were available. Let me do a follow up on that though. Given the breadth of market sectors that you guys work in and given that it seems like each tip of the spear, as it were, kind of has their projects that are their pursuit projects, their passion projects. How does that manifest itself in your staff? Do you have, these are my guys, these are Irby's guys, like, do you have people that just float all over the place constantly? Or do you kind of go, well, these are like my two or three, because I will tell you, and like even at Boca Powell, where I work now, every partner has like one or two people that everybody knows hands off those people. Those are their people and you can't use them. Now you got to go down the pyramid of individuals before you get a lot of lateral movement between project types and partners and that kind of thing. How does that work in your office? I think we've been really good about not kind of claiming people. I think there are people that we depend on to do certain things, especially if we have to do them in a hurry, that really we've come to depend on from we know their skill sets, but there's no claiming people. There's no claiming. Interesting. Now, that's an inefficient way, I'll tell you, to run a project necessarily. But, you know, and we're always, we're always grappling with, hey, I need people or can I have this person? I would say the one exception to that is the multifamily work, mostly because of the project type is, although they're big, bulky things, depending if they're spread out or mixed use or mid-rise, but they just are dealt with in the construction world in a completely different way than a typical commercial project. 
So yeah, that group tends to be tighter. And there are a couple people within that that are, you know, they don't really work on much else except those projects. Yeah. More from Life of an Architect in just a moment. In the final installment of our four-part series regarding the licensing process, Andrew and I are joined once again by Jared Zern, AIA Vice President, Examination for NCARB. Jared has agreed to sit down with us to go through questions that have been submitted by people from all over the world through a survey posted to my Instagram account for the sole purpose of having Jared answer them. There were no limitations or restrictions to the questions submitted, and we're going to go through as many as possible on this, our final episode. Hi, Jared. Welcome back to the show. It's good to see you again. Great. Thanks for having me. Yeah. All right. So this is the last installment. This is our last episode with you. Final section here. Thanks again for taking the time and answering all the previous questions. I'd like to think we saved the best for last, but I don't know if that's true <laughs> or not. Certainly to the people that submitted these four questions, right? So I will try to give you the best answers. <laughs> there <that>. you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, I appreciate that. So let's jump into this one. So why are the regular NCARB certificate maintenance fees so high? So interestingly enough, the certificate holders out there, like myself, I'm an NCARB certificate holder. When I pay my annual renew fee, this is actually the one fee at NCARB that generates surplus revenue for us. And we use that surplus revenue to fund our other programs like the AXP and the ARE. So every time someone renews their NCARB certificate, they're actually supporting the next generation of architects. It's a nice way to spin it. Yeah. I, I, don't, <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. I mean, it's a real answer, right? I mean, you guys need to have operating capital to do what it is that you do. So it's not unreasonable that there has to be some kind of cost silo that generates revenue for you so that you can exist. I mean, that's why fees exist. Exactly. It's just like running an architecture firm where you know you're going to make more money on some projects than other projects. And you do that on purpose because it maybe allows you to enjoy some of those other projects that aren't really cash generators. Wonderful. <laughs> Sounds like an answer. Uh, <laughs> we'll see how it goes. So the next question actually deals with the past, I guess, year and a half to two years. How does NCARB think that they handled things during the pandemic with regards to testing, I would imagine? Certainly. So I would give NCARB a couple different grades over the last couple of years on how we handled the pandemic. I think specifically on the exam front, I would give NCARB a grade of like a B. And partly because when the pandemic hit, Obviously, some of our early assumptions were just wrong. We all thought, hey, three weeks later, we were going to be back in test centers. And we implemented some policy decisions at that time in a very short-term fashion. And then we pivoted as we went and eventually led to 18 months of extensions for candidates. So I think in our early days, we learned more about how to better communicate with candidates. So we definitely were not an A grade from an examination perspective. I think as an organization overall, though, NCARB actually has been an A. And the reason I would say that is because we kept things moving and we were able to actually launch online proctor during the pandemic. We held both of our annual meetings. We didn't put anything on delay. The work of the council kept going. The exams kept being delivered. There was only that short period of time where we were not delivering exams. And on the back end, we are in a stronger position now to support exam candidates, whether they're taking it online or taking it at a test center. I would imagine when I saw this question come through, and I know the person who sent it, He's got a lot of hot opinions for sure because he's a passionate individual. And 
I will add, I think part of my grading is comparing us to some other organizations that I know in the credentialing world and how they literally shut down for the last 12 months and haven't done anything. Some certification programs have stopped. And the fact that we haven't, although it hasn't been perfectly smooth, at least it allowed the opportunity for candidates to continue their licensure journey. Yeah. Well, I can just look at my own business and know how hard it's been to pivot and make changes and adjust and try to adapt to how things are changing. And like you said, we thought when this started that we were going to be done super fast. Mm -hmm. And so, and all of a sudden it's not. And you're like, I need to come up with policies. And it was lockdown. I can only imagine and appreciate how much harder that would be when you're a national organization and your constituents literally run the gamut of what they need and what their situations are. So I can appreciate the challenge with what you guys had to go through. Okay, next question I have for you is, why can't you take a licensing exam with a four-year degree? So you can take a licensing exam with a four-year degree. And again, it does depend on the jurisdiction in which you're pursuing initial licensure. So many of our jurisdictions do require the NAB accredited degree for initial licensure, and that's an impediment in those states. But we have 16 jurisdictions that allow you to test today without a NAB accredited degree. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I think a lot of the questions seem to be going back to the issue of jurisdictions and it may just be where they're at that has certain restrictions, but they don't realize that there are whatever, 16 or 17 other places that they don't have that same restriction. Yeah. And again, I will say if you are a candidate out there, somebody who's interested in taking the exam and you don't have an NAB degree, please contact NCAR. Again, we will help you understand your options to get your eligibilities to take the ARE. That's a nice high note to end on, Jared. So I'm going to say that's the end of the questions for what we've had to work through over the last four episodes. And again, really appreciate your time. Thank you for joining us to work through this. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. Special thanks to our sponsor, NCAR, which is conducting a profession-wide study called Analysis of Practice. If you are an architect or in the process of becoming one, your participation is valued and important in shaping the future of the licensing process please visit ncarb.org forward slash AOP and be a part of the change you want to see. I'm kind of curious because that's one of the selling points that I advocate. And we talk about this at the, I mean, I hate to say it like this, but we have a leadership group within our office. And those people get together and have all kinds of really gruesome, terrible conversations that we try to vet through before we bring it to the attention of the, of the owners. So we don't just blindly blurt something out that hasn't been thought through. And that's part of what the leadership group has been tasked with doing. And there's been conversation that we've been talking through about the capital A architect, which is the idea that you develop somebody who can design, who can do production, that can do administration, they can PM a project like how do you grow this person that has a skill set that runs top to bottom and the amount of time and effort energy it takes to create that person? And that's assuming that that's what they want. Because I will tell you, there are people that come in and they're like, I don't want to stand up front of the client and talk about why we chose this type of glass or why we made this move. I just want to sit back here, put on my headphones and do details because that's what I like. And I like working in a team environment and that's what they want. So of course you want to accommodate those folks because those folks a lot of time are really, really important and they're really valuable. But the idea that you're creating an individual that can do it all is something that we talk about a lot. 
And part of the reason we really started to drill down into this is the idea that before when you would silo go, here are our designers and here's our production people. There's a natural chasm that gets created because the designers don't understand how the building actually works or they don't know the codes as well. So the people doing the production work, the project architects, they're having to solve all the problems that these dummy project designers don't understand. But then at the same time, the project designers will go, hey, when you had these two canopies and they're 50 feet apart, why aren't they the same height? You know, like, why are they different heights? Because the production people are like, I just drew it. Like, sometimes they start to remove themselves from the design responsibility, which I know I've said it on this podcast a lot. I know I've written it a lot. That mentality drives me crazy. The people doing the production work make a hundred times the number of design decisions that the front end project designer quote unquote, makes. The thing that makes a project great is how well it's detailed and how consistent those details are carried through. So we're trying to develop these people through, hey, design projects, then learn how to detail it, and then learn how it gets built. And then if you still want to design, come back and be designer and you'll be that much better because you understand all these other components. But that is not a traditional large firm workflow process, creating that person. It requires you to commit to mentorship, and that is not a natural, I don't think, for a lot of firm leaders. Yeah. That's an observation. I don't think we've done a particularly good job of mentorship. We've had a number of people who have kind of been in the firm and they've grown in that, but it's not because we said, okay, you do this, you do that. Now the next project, you're going to do this, not that. And it's a complicated process. And I, I agree with you. There are lots of people. We have them too. They just want to they just want to produce things. They may have very great intuitive design skills and that's a great asset to have on a team. But there's some people who just want to come in, draw their 8 hours, go home. That's okay. Yeah, well let me ask you this cuz this is something that our mutual buddy Michael Malone, who I used to partner with, talked about a little bit. And this might be a distinction between a small firm mentality and how they manage their people and their projects and how they run things versus large firms is he would routinely say that we're terrible at managing and mentoring people because we're all moving so fast. We all have to do it all. What we really need, I probably heard this so many times I could quote him verbatim. He says, I like to manage people the way I want to be managed, which is tell me what the finish line is and just let me figure out how to get there. That's his dream scenario. And I think that works in an office like my last office. We had 10 people that honestly, I think I would stack those 10 people up against any other 10 people anywhere. They were all really, really amazing folks. Well, that's a luxury that large firms don't necessarily had. You know, we had like a couple valedictorians in our class. Like everybody was a heat-seeking missile in that office. I mean, statistically, 50 people, 60, 100 people, you're not going to have that level of heat-seeking missile of individuals that you can count on to say, Just tell me what you need and I'll figure out how to get there. So mentorship seems to be baked in as a requirement or a necessity in a large firm. But then at the same time, large firms tend to also not be particularly good at it. I'd agree with that. We started a mentorship program in the firm three or four years ago, but it wasn't started by leadership. It was started by associate level folks. And they really did a very good job of a beginning, I would say, of sort of saying, asking the staff what they wanted to be mentored in. 
it wasn't this, I'm going to go out and build somebody to, you know, replace me or build the perfect capital A architect. It was like, you got to listen to what those people want to know. And they're essentially interested in learning. You hope that they want to do all these other things, but it's not a, I don't think it's a, an absolute criteria. I think the advantage of also of a larger firm, you're going to have some natural stratification and skill levels that bubble to the top where people are comfortable. I have a terrific young guy working for me. We put him in a project architect kind of role, and he did not do well. And after it, he just said, my personality type, I can't do this. He said, it's not that I'm not interested in doing it. He said, but I just recognize that this doesn't fit well with who I am. Mm-hmm. It's a nice level of self-awareness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I've talked to some people about this idea of mentorship. A lot of times this notion comes up of as soon as I show, not subordinate, but some person lower than me on, on the food chain, how the sausage is made, they're going to go out and make their own sausage. And then I'm, I'm stuck because I've invested all this time to this person and they're leaving my business to go make their own sausage. So then there's this sort of idea of not wanting to mentor people because you're scared that they're going to leave. I don't subscribe to that, but I've heard that in some previous conversations when this idea of mentorship comes up. I don't know how that works, and I'm sure it works differently in small firms versus larger firms, too. I can remember thinking those things, too, but I think quite a bit of gray-white hair on my head, I can sort of say that was really that was really kind of silly to do that because... I think if you're mentoring someone, you're actually telling them how much you care about them. And I think the people who are not just plotting their own exit strategy at that moment, I think they really recognize that, okay, here's a place that's going to take care of me. They're going to help me get where I want to go, and Mm -hmm. it's going to be worth staying. As we know, know, our profession is influenced by so many factors. You could be 50... uh, people one day and, you know, a year and a half later, you could be five, right? It has happened. I've seen it happen. So, (laughs) yeah. I'm kind of, Mike, to kind of tack on to what you were saying earlier. When I think about just two plus years ago, when we were eight people, we didn't have any kind of organized mentorship. I'm predisposed, I think, to, to go in that role because I naturally am that person will tell you how to build a clock when you ask me what time it is. It's something that I gravitate towards. And in some ways, I think it's part of the reason I've written the blog here, Life of an Architect, for so long. It's because I get a lot out of that taking in, giving back, building upon it. I can answer a question for you because I do know this. And so it's it's built into my DNA. But we didn't have anything organized. It seems ridiculous that we would. Now, I will tell you at Book of Pal, we recently just rolled out, and this is, I think... I don't want to take credit for it if I don't deserve it, but I treat the people that work with me like I did when I had a firm of eight people. I pull up a chair and sit next to them and I sketch and we work through details and I talk to the designers about, well, how are you going to build this? So let's, cause that's going to manifest itself in what it looks like. So you have to work through it. And it's worked out really, really well, but we've started to break out people into what we call, there's a direct report tree. This staff reports to that person. This staff reports to that person. And it really has to do with who your daily, like who your PM is, like if you're working on projects, that sort of thing. But we bifurcated that role and created a mentorship tree. And it's really, again, I just have three people in my mentorship tree. And I was already meeting with them. 
And when we would meet with them, my role as you know the mentor is not to talk about how their projects are going because half the people in my mentorship tree are in my direct report tree, but it's to talk about what do they need? What obstacles can I get out of their way? What support do they need? So it's not project specific. It's I want to join the AIA committee and I need some consideration for the time. And I have the ability to walk into certain rooms and have that conversation in a much more direct manner than they do. So how can I help them achieve the things that they want? And that was not anything that was kind of formally in place before. And we've just kind of started to roll it out. So I'm really curious to see how it will manifest itself in a firm that's 100 people like Book of Palace. I have hopes for it because it also represents that every person should have someone who is their advocate so that that person who just likes to stay in their lane and do their drawing, like who speaks up for that person when they need a voice in a room that they're not in. And I kind of felt like in big firms, those people are are easy to lose track of. And so that's why we did this. And I think the mentor mentee, I think the sort of default thing is, is like, oh, it's somebody with gray hair who's teaching someone who's like 30. We actually offered the mentorship. Our young associates said, well, we're going to have also a reverse mentorship. And the idea was, is like, you know, if a curmudgeon like me wants to learn how to do X, Y, Z in some software, there's going to be somebody. How to make a PDF. I was going to say, how to manage a PDF. (laughs) How do I do that? Yeah. How do you compress that big file into a smaller one? Yeah. That's funny. (laughs) And I'm not joking about that. It was literally that kind of stuff. It's like, cool. Yeah. I mean, because everybody needs mentorship. Everybody. I don't care how long you've been doing this. Everybody needs to learn something from somebody else. Well, you know, while this is an, an episode on mentorship, I, I'm generally of the opinion that the mentor-mentee relationship, it's two-way, but it has to happen organically. You can't assign a mentee to a mentor. Correct. If I'm the person that you're looking for for life guidance, while that might be ill-advised, that has to happen organically. Somebody can't say, go talk to him. He'll tell you everything you need to know. I don't think that that can work that way. Agreed. Our idea of the mentorship really has to do with the ability to to give a voice to people that feel like maybe they're underrepresented. Yeah. I think that's a big part of how, how that's supposed to work. That's a small firm mentality, but I don't know enough about these larger firms to know whether or not something like that exists in a similar fashion and if it has achieved success or not. I think at 50 people, you can, A, know everybody's name. You can know something about them personally. And you should be able to find something to share when you are, you know, in the plotter room, at the coffee machine, all of those sorts of things. And I think that goes to building sort of a culture. I don't know. Can you do that at a hundred people? I can. I know the names of all hundred people in my office. You think everyone in leadership knows the names of the other? Yeah, I kind of do. Good. I mean, it might make a difference that we have three different offices so that it helps kind of funnel. Like we have an Austin office and we have a Fort Worth office and we have a Dallas office. So those blocks are more digestible. Like Dallas has 80 people in it. So that's more manageable. The people that I'm going to walk up to at the copier is not all 100, but we know who all those people are. I know who all those people are, but I couldn't necessarily tell you what school everybody out of those 100 went to. All right. So you brought up culture. Let's pivot this into culture a little bit. And it's the 
it's the idea that, like, do you have firms within firms, which we kind of already started to talk about, once you get to a certain size, and does firm culture reflect how leadership wants to work? That's a, I don't know, maybe that's not the best way to ask the question, but it's the idea that you have four, and I don't need to make this specific about Alamo Architects, but maybe that's a position you can speak to it. So if I have a firm of 50 or 100 people, and I have four partners or four owners, and each one of those four owners works in different silos or market sectors, and they have their people that generally start to become specialists within that group if they're in multifamily or if they're in core and shell office building, whatever the case may be. Do those people and their workflow and how they go about solving problems reflect their person that's at the top, you know, that things start to trickle down? If you're working on an office building, you might say, well, that's nine months of my life that I am pointedly engaged with this one person. And if it's formative years, I'm learning how they like to do it because that's how I'm being taught to do it. Then all of a sudden, you know, a year later, you may or may not move to a different partner and go, wow, this is completely different than it was when I worked for this person. Does that manifest itself in even your office of 50 people? Um, I would say a little bit. I think because most of the senior leadership basically crosses markets or project types, that that doesn't happen as much. And, and again, we don't really have, oh, that's the higher ed team. You can't go over and touch them because those higher ed teams, when, they're, when those folks are not working on a UT health system project or something, they're helping you know, our K through 12 charter school group or whatever that is. So the culture of the firm is more important than the culture of the personality. And I would make a distinction between that. Yeah. I wonder if that, if that can be manufactured or if that just organically comes to exist. You know, I think the way Alamo was started, you were all buddies. Yes. Like literally it was, it was born out, we're sitting at a table having a drink and we're all I don't know everybody's age. Is there a wide range of age between all of you? No. We were in two different classes. Yeah. So so you're kind of all cut from a similar cloth yes. to a certain yeah. extent. So you're you're probably you're not the 60-year-old guy that's like saying this is how we did it back in my day. We had to carve our own pencils from tree barks. And you got the 40-year-old partner who's saying we shouldn't even have pencils in our office. <laughs> you know, we should be 100% digital. You probably don't have that sort of disconnect in your office. No, we don't, but we do have another generation of leadership coming up and we treat them equally as we do. I mean, we're transitioning ownership. I mean, we're going through all that kind of stuff and a sort of intentional plan to do that. And we've been, I think, really good about that next level of leadership of having them, in a sense, embrace the culture of the firm that we sort of establish. Mm -hmm. I've said, and sometimes in our 37 years that there have been several times where it was really, really great that we were friends before we were business partners. And then there've been some times where probably that wasn't such a good idea, <laughs> but you know, we're still yeah. partners and we're still friends. Can you go into great detail into those moments for us, please? <laughs> no, I'm, you know, probably the one in particular was, you know, 20 plus years ago, we, you know, a couple of my partners wanted to move to Austin and it really wasn't 
that much about the firm moving to Austin. It was about moving to Austin for a different reason, but it was, you know, there was no work there. There was nothing to look at. And from, you know, a business practice, it made absolutely no sense at all. And from Mm -hmm. a friendship practice, it really kind of strained that quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And we just said, and we finally said, no. Now I look back now and go, well, if we'd have done that, 20 years ago, we'd probably have a pretty nice little practice established in uh, the city now. Not a good business decision. But I'm curious about when we talk about this idea of firm culture, at what point as an owner do you feel like you kind of lose control over that idea of firm culture? I would feel like at a certain size, the culture is out of my hands to a certain extent. It's not like somebody with 250 employees can start to mandate the firm culture as much as someone with probably 20 or 30 or maybe even 50. Firm culture becomes more about what's been created and I guess as opposed to what you're continuing to try to do or how much you can control it as an owner or group of owners. We went through kind of a management analysis several years ago and that led to some kind of strategic planning, which really made us put our core values in actual words. And I think that was probably the most significant thing we've done in a long, long time to sort of say, this is what Alamo Architects is about. It flowed from our four founding kind of personalities and what we believed in and what we thought were important in the way we treated people through time. But it was the best thing that we've ever done. And we, the entire firm was involved in it. And basically every single person in the firm can look at that and say that it's like, that's who we are. That's who I am. Let's get after it. So I think you can't manufacture firm culture. I think you can build firm culture and you can hold on to it and you can allow it to sort of ebb and flow as it needs to, to go over time. I mean, I'd ask Bob that question about Vocapal. I mean, 80 people in one place and the 20 and two other offices. Is there a firm culture for Boca Pal that's realizable in those three places? No, there's not. The Austin firm has its own identity and its own personality, even though I work with someone from the Austin office every single day. And we have a great time. We have a great relationship. Everything's fine. But that firm, that office, I should say, is just slightly different. But part of the nuances to it is we don't have any ownership in Fort Worth or in Austin. The four owners of Boca Pal are all in Dallas. And we have the two senior most principals that are non-owners each run one of those offices. So their office really kind of takes on their personality to a certain extent, which is kind of why I was asking the question I did earlier about attitude reflects leadership because those offices don't reflect what it is in Dallas because their temperament and their the atmosphere, it's just it's different because they are different. I will say that there's a lot of things that are bad about what I'm about to say, but there's also a lot of things that I think are reasonable and good. This is one of the things I miss most about helping to shape culture within an office is when you're in a small firm, the way that we went about hiring people was different than what it is at a larger firm. You know, now I need to have a representative from HR in the room. And I'm actually not in the room with everybody, even though, quite honestly, at times I go, I wish I was. I think I have a pretty good track record. I know exactly the type of brain that I want to hire because, like, 
the way that I look at hiring people is not the way some other people look at it. However, that bears from the idea that I've never hired for need, meaning I haven't ever hired a PM because I need a PM, or I've never hired a project architect or a production person because that's what I need. I go out there and say, what's the best person I can get to come work and be a part and grow what we're doing? And it gets people excited. I let them figure out what their own trajectory is. And in a small firm, that was really easy to do because everybody got to do everything. So there was no, well, I don't want to do this aspect to someone's daily workflow. Like that was not something we had to deal with. And I can recognize that in a larger firm, we need project architects. Like if all of a sudden I have two guys relocate to another part of the country for family reasons, and I go, I need people with a skill set to manage certain types of jobs at this level. I can't just elevate somebody into that position because it takes time and effort and energy to understand how to manage a project like this. We're then put in a position to go find someone who has that skill set that we can bring in. So you're not hiring position players anymore, which I don't like. Inherently in my core, I don't like that as an idea. I also don't think that we have consistency in how we hire people, even though we just got through with our leadership retreat. And one of the things we talked about, is there any kind of functional protocol or some kind of methodology we can put in place to try to be consistent in our hiring practices? Now, the part that's bad is I want all different kinds of people. I want people that think differently because that fosters new ways of looking at things. And that's important. So I want people from diverse backgrounds. But I can't get away from the fact that I'm pretty sure, even though I I try not to, I probably have some biases built into me. I think everybody does. And so having a diversified group of people that are responsible for the hiring is important. But I don't think HR should be a part of it. (laughs) They're not architects. And the truth is, our group does a decent job because they're in there to make sure if somebody asks a question about dental benefits, somebody can answer it because I sure can But that's something that we deal with. I think that's a big part of culture is that you hire for it to a certain extent. Like you want people to think a certain way and it's easy in a small firm and it's really hard in a big firm. Yeah, I agree. I think the, I think the challenge for us all in our profession right now, if we're truly committed to equity, diversity, and inclusion is to say, how am I, Mike McGlone, Alan Architects, how are you, Bob Borson, Boca Powell, Andrew Hawkins, Architecture? How are you going to move the needle as opposed to, well, that's somebody else's thing, right? There's some difficulty in that. I think because I tend to hire, I think like you do, Bob, and I did this almost exclusively for until the last five years, I did most of the primary interviewing and stuff and making the final decisions about people. And it's really, do you fit first? Are you going to be successful and happy. And we're going to be happy because you're being successful for us and then need, even though there are many times we should have said we should have been hiring for need, but we don't have as big a pool of people to select from. But the point is, is that when we've been successful in that, we've, we've tried to hire people that we think are going to be a good fit for us. And I generally have, I mean, I think like you, you have sort of an intuitive sense about that as well as some, you know, there's some metrics on a a resume, but I found it much, much harder to hire for need at an upper level, right? Yes. We seem to miss more on the more experienced hires. Now I'm, I'm convinced I won't miss ever on somebody in the 
zero to two years experience. I'm convinced that I will have a 100% success rate hiring that bracket of person. And that's partly because I can determine everything I need to know just by talking to them. Do they ask questions? Do they use certain words? Like how do they communicate? I can tell what kind of brain they have and I can say, the rest of it, we can we can build upon this. I have all the parts are in that hood for us to get where we think this is going to work out great for both of us. It's when I have someone who's got 12 or 8 or 10 years experience and I go, right, you're telling me you can do all this stuff. I'm not making you do a Revit test. You show me a set of documents that I did it and I have to take you at your word. Then I find out actually maybe you and a team of people did it and you're not ready to take on the responsibilities that I thought I was hiring you into. It's much, much harder to hire at a higher level. And that's also one of the differences between a small firm and a large firm. The people at the top in small firms, they tend to not leave because there's not a lot of people at the top. Yes. The silo goes from one to two to six. No, it doesn't go from four to 10 to 80. Right. We were talking about getting into this idea of hiring to maintain firm culture. And I guess it sounds like somewhere between 50-ish and a size to 100 is that ability becomes much harder. I mean, I'm always hiring somebody that I feel like is going to fit in. Because again, most of the time, what I was doing there, this is that zero to two range or early on career range. I'm going to teach them how to do everything they need to do anyway. So it was really about would they fit into the firm and and mesh with our small group of people. And (laughs) I would have never survived having an HR person in any of my interviews. (laughs) Because, you know, there's certain things you throw out a few phrases and whatnot to make sure that they're okay or make jokes and what have you that it's all right for me to drop a four-letter word. They're not going to freak out because I might do that every now and then. Well, that's the culture of this office. So yeah. if, if you don't like it, I just need to know it. So here's yeah. your test. Bloop. <laughs> yeah. And if they get a shock look in their face, I'm like, well. This might not work. <laughs> you're qualified, but you're not qualified to be here. But it sounds like that somewhere in between that size, it becomes much more difficult to hire to maintain culture, which to me, that was a big part of it as a small firm. That's always what I'm hiring for, maintain the culture of my firm and, and help those people fit in with the identity of what I was trying to create. And I think as you get larger, sometimes... I hate to use this, but sometimes you need to hire some warm bodies because you need help right then. And you go, okay, we've tried very, very hard over the years is to not hire up and fire down. Mm -hmm. I just don't believe in that. I I don't believe that that's a fundamentally successful way to run a practice. I don't want to be that kind of person. Said, hey, you know what? Just turn the CDs in, you know, so long. And I know that still happens in places. Well, you certainly don't want to develop a reputation for it. I, I know that we go out of our way to not make that happen. And sometimes that has disastrous results because, you know, when like COVID hit and the shutdown and we do a lot of core and shell office buildings, people aren't coming into offices anymore. Like, so we're not going to keep building them for a while. So there was kind of this, hey, everyone kind of hit the pause button. Right. And, you know, leadership at our office were like, we're just going to get killed on this. And they kept everybody for a long time and we're hemorrhaging money because we don't want to be that firm. It's important. And they, Andrew Bennett, who's one of the owners in the office, and he's really the person that's responsible for, for lack of a better word, recruiting me over to Boca Pal. He knows it because I've told him this since, but the thing that made it work for me, the thing that convinced me that I could leave my small firm world in existence and maybe find a home in a larger firm was as he was describing the people in the office, and when he walked me around, he knew something personal 
about every single person. And that's how he described the staff was them as people, not them as position players within the operational organization of a firm. And I went, that's how small firms are. Like I would never walk somebody through my tiny office and go, this is Bill. He does production, right? It would, it would never come out that way. <laughs> I would say, this is Bill. He's a hokey, but we don't hold that up against him. You know, that sort of thing. There's this, this knowledge that you know, and that's how he was. And I went, I think I could make this work. He's doing it. I think I could do it because that was really important to me. But one of the things I want to jump back just a little bit to ask a question about, and it has to do with hiring for, for need and for role and position and all that kind of stuff. We have this phrase because we just got through doing our leadership retreat and we had to go through the very, very unpleasant experience of ranking all our employees. And I get why we do it because you want to say these are our best people and these are the people that need a performance improvement plan. Like we want to find a way to help them get from wherever they're stuck into some place that makes them happier and more productive and you know all that kind of good stuff. And these are the people that Maybe we don't want to hear because they're not contributing, not to the bottom line, because we didn't, that never got brought up. It had to do with they're not contributing to the culture of the firm. So where that goes is we started using this phrase, who's on the bus? And the way that we tended to evaluate people wasn't just in their ability to do their job. It was how do they as a person make the experience of working in our office better? Came from how do they fit in? How do they, are they positive? Are they like, not cheerleaders, that was not something we look for either, but it's the people that get involved, that things matter to them. They do more than they're asked simply because they want it to be better. There's these kind of tendencies that you look for, because it's also not about who works more hours, because I could probably line up a bunch of people and go, they get way more done in 40 hours than these people get in 60 hours. So it's not a matter of how much time you work, but it's do you do more than you're asked because that's just who you are. What is the value of your contribution? And value is not about dollars and cents. I mean, that's the, that's the question you have to ask yourself about your employees. What is the value of their contribution? Some of it is whiz, bang, I can get this done. Some of it, it's you got to have people like that <laughs> in our office. I yeah. mean, we've got several like that. You know, when we look at our admin core staff, which is very, very small for the size of our firm, they're all people that have enormous value beyond their actual job description. I've never had anybody who was in the office who was a dedicated admin type person. And I will tell you, they are quite literally the glue of the office. Yep. And what's ironic is when we started this call before we hit record, I think it was either you or Andrew, somebody goes, well, you're at home. Why are you at home? And I said, well, because we kind of had like a little mini COVID outbreak. You know why? Because it was an admin who got it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then the admin got the other admins and then the admins just got, they get everybody because they go everywhere. Right. They engage everybody and their capacity in the office can't be measured by their administrative duties in my mind. Right. Okay. Well, we've been at this for a while. I don't know if there's any kind of major questions that we think that we should discuss that we missed. Because if not, we can just get into the would you rather question, which I know is about 90% of the people listening to the show. That's what they want. They want the would you rather question. Okay. Let's go for it. It's the only part that's truly entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's different. All right. Mike has said that he's listened to the show a few times. So we're going to assume that you understand how the would you rather question works. As our guest, we're going to let you answer first. 
And then when you answer incorrectly, Andrew and I will then subsequently tell you why you answered incorrectly. <laughs> That's how this works. Okay. You got it. Here's the question. And because Andrew and I both know Mike, I think, pretty well, I chose a question that Andrew wrote, but it's a particularly silly one <laughs> for today's. For today's I'm going to say I found. I didn't write this one. I found this one. <laughs> Whatever. I don't want to take that much credit for it. Look, I'll take credit for it. I came up with today's question. All right. Here we go. Would you rather take a bath in oatmeal or jello? <laughs> Stupid question. <laughs> oatmeal with raisins. Oh, oh. oh. That's, that's everything about it. It went from good wrong. to worse. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. So, Mike's saying you're, that's it oatmeal with raisins in it. Oh. That's what you're going with? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Here's the question Is it hot oatmeal? Or is it like room temperature oatmeal or what is it? Overnight oats or whatever it is now yeah. that everybody does. <laughs> it's those kind of oats you get in limited service hotels that you have to sort of pour your own water in and put it in the microwave. No. But we're talking the kind of oatmeal I always remember as a child, which was lukewarm. Mm. Lukewarm. Is that because it was made and they set it on the table and then by the time you got there, it had cooled off a bit? Yeah. Or? Well, let's just say that my mom made breakfast for my dad who left the house to go to the steel mill considerably earlier than my sister and I did to go to school. So it had been <laughs> on the stove and it was in the reheat mode. Yeah. yeah. Man, that's painting a delicious picture. Yeah. I'm just impressed that your mom actually made you breakfast. <laughs> That didn't happen in my house. All right, oatmeal. And I'm going to have to concur. I mean, I'm going with oatmeal. I don't want raisins in it, but but definitely oatmeal. You do that and you've got nice, soft, and smooth skin. I mean, I think that's actually something you could get at the spa, some kind of oatmeal bath. Steel-cut oatmeal. Yeah, and jello just sounds terrible. I just hate being sticky. I was thinking about this a while ago. Like, that's one of the, my least favorite periods of my children is when they were always sticky. <laughs> like, I just hate, right? I just... I hate being sticky. I hate that part. Like sticky anything is gross. I just feel like jello would be sticky. That's a fair point. Is it just jello? When I read that, is it I get in the tub and you pour the jello in and as I'm bathing it starts to gel? Oh no. Around me? Or I think there are massive quantities of jellos in the tub. <laughs> and then you get to sort of slippery slide in. Yeah. yeah. All right. And what color jello? What color jello? It'd be red. It's gotta be red, right? And then you're stained. You're just stained red. <laughs> so when I read the question, what I imagined is somebody makes jello in the tub and then you have to get into it. So part of me was thinking, if you got into it, you would just sit on top of it. So you'd have to like go like crack it and work your way into it. I don't know if you remember that movie. It was one of the Peter Sellers. But I I think I think his boss was Inspector Dreyfus, mm -hmm. right? I, I might be wrong, but in one of the movies, somebody turned his pool into jello. I think it was Clouseau. And he bounces on the diving board. And when he hits the jello pool, he just slaps it <laughs> and is on the surface. Like he doesn't, it's not like he slipped into it. I mean, it was like smack. And so I sit there and think the act of getting in the jello that was made in the tub would be super, super unpleasant as opposed to it's cubed up already, which allows you to kind of. Shimmy, and then your body temperature is going to melt it a little. Oh. <laughs> There's no question oatmeal's the right answer here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess oatmeal might not be much better. If, if you made oatmeal in the tub, it's sort of lumpy and it's thick, so you're still going to have the 
wriggle your way down into it. It's not like it's just either one is going to be an easy entrance. And I would say the oatmeal is likely to set while you're in there. And you may have problems <laughs> getting out as opposed to getting yeah, in yeah. with the jello. You just constantly move, Mike. That's how that you problem solve that by just constantly vibrating oh when you're in, your, in your bed. The raisins all go to the bottom then. <laughs> yeah, you're like the vibrator in the concrete mix. The concrete mix. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 We're all in agreement. If anybody says jello, we're just we need to write them off. <laughs> Either they're broken in some way, or they're just not taking this question seriously. Exactly. <laughs> they really like the sweet stuff. Oh, I didn't even think about the idea that you could eat part of it. What about like Jello with fruit cocktail in it? Like a giant tub of Jello with fruit cocktail, with fruit chunks in it, Ugh. or the uh, the one from Christmas Vacation that's got cat food mixed in with it on accident, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Oh, oh no! Hey, that'd be at least it'd be like some pumice on your skin. No, that's true. but I mean that's what oatmeal would be the whole time. I'm gonna come out with super smooth feet and yeah. super smooth elbows because I'm having to vibrate so much to keep it from solidifying. <laughs> it's a whole process. I think you called it right. I think there's actually like spa treatments where oatmeal is somehow involved in yeah, and you know, like caking it on your face or your heels or I don't I don't know. Yeah, we could get real persnickety about the. Uh, question and say would you rather take a bath meaning you you're getting in there to get clean it's impossible no the sticky is terrible but also can you imagine like when you got out of the jello other than like the slight glaze you might have because your body temperature has like melted some of the jello on you the oatmeal you'd have to like you'd have to like scrape it off of every every surface of your body I think it'd be harder to clean up from an oatmeal bath than it would be a, a jello bath. You just have to take another real shower to get it all off. Or have a dog. <laughs> have a dog. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. A couple dogs make short work of that. Probably. One. Yeah, that's true. Actually, I think they do better work on jello than they probably would on oatmeal. But they'd like the, yeah. they'd like probably like the oatmeal better. I want to stop visualizing dogs <laughs> cleaning us up. And- <laughs> Uh, maybe it sounds like you should have an experiment, Bob. Just stick one hand in Jello, one hand in oatmeal, and see which ones your dogs clean off faster. I mean, I don't have any dogs, so my cats aren't doing anything. I think my dogs would literally just eat anything. It doesn't matter. <laughs> They're not picky. Uh, I don't think that'd be a problem. Truth is, is I was going to choose oatmeal because I don't like Jello at all. Like, just I don't want to eat it. I don't want to like shoot it. I don't want to touch it. Everything about Jello, I think, is. <laughs> wrong was it like ski like, shoots with jello what are you talking about shoot oh you shoot know what i'm jello talking. shots is that oh, yes. <laughs> oh. yeah those are just bad memories that's all the or lack of memories is jello shots i never understood that i went to one son's college graduation and ended up you know <laughs> at the at the party after the party after the party and it was like here it's a jello shot and it was like perhaps the worst thing i'd ever had <laughs> I just still remember seeing people in college, like it's in a cup, and they put it up to their mouth, and then they have to stick their tongue and then rim the inside <laughs> to break it, and then Stop. suck it. And then half, half the people would choke as it erupted uh, into their throat all of a sudden. When it's 105 degrees and you're floating down the river in New Braunfels, jello shots are okay. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> that sounds like a bad idea. I didn't okay. say it was a good idea. I said they were okay. Mm. Well, there you go. 
I'm going to call it quits. <laughs> Mike, I appreciate you coming on the show today and sharing your decades and decades and decades of, <laughs> of insight and experience and wisdom with us today. My pleasure to join you. Thanks so much. It's good to see you again. It's only been, what, a couple of days, I think. A couple of days. Hey, well, when am I going to see you again, Andrew? Yeah, it's going to be a while. We'll find a reason. I have to come down. It's, that All right. sounds right. I'm going to be back down in San Antonio in a little while. We'll have to do a repeat of our tacos and margaritas. That was a yep. good night. You bet. There you go. Another episode in the record books. I hope you enjoyed the more serious part of today's discussion. Thank you for being with us today for episode 89, Small Firm Mentality. Special thanks to our sponsor, Incar, which is conducting a profession-wide study called the Analysis of Practice. If you're an architect or in the process of becoming one, your participation is valued and important in shaping the future of the licensing process. Please visit incarb.org AOP and be part of the change you want to see. Special thanks to our media partners, Building Design and Construction, for their ongoing support of the Life of an Architect podcast. If you liked today's episode, please take the next 15 seconds and head over to your favorite podcast listening app and hit that subscribe or follow button so you can get graciously stuffed new episodes automatically downloaded every two weeks because this is right after Thanksgiving. That's why. Well, while you're there, please consider giving us a comment and I would greatly appreciate it if you would leave us a five star. That's how we do it in my office rating. Be sure to visit the original lifeofanarchitect.com for show notes, links, info, and photos from this glorious episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. Take it easy, everybody. Cheers.